I think that's my cue. Well, good morning, everyone. That was a great prayer, but if you would allow me to pray again, I always like to pray before we start on something like this myself. So let's pray. Father, um, your words is the rain and the snow um, do not fall down from the heavens without watering the earth so that it provides um, seed for the sower, bread for the eater. In the same way, your words do not go out from your mouth without accomplishing what you intend. And so as the rain has been falling <clears throat> and is already producing a lot of the much-needed results in this area of life, we pray that your words, as they descend on our hearts, would find fertile soil, not distracted soil or hardened hearts, uh, but, but hearts that are open. And we, we need your words, and we ask that you would bring life in our own lives out of these words this morning. And we pray this now in your name. Amen. So, <clears throat> you are, the words of Jesus, the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. We went over that, but let's just review that again. Because I really want this to last longer in your life than your t-shirts will. So you, this is you personally, individually, if you have decided to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and to follow him as your Lord, your boss, then you're part of the you. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And it's a plural you, it's a you all, because none of us are salt enough or light enough to really make the kind of impact that Jesus intends to make on this world. So it's as we individually decide to follow Jesus, and then as we collectively band together, wherever God calls us to band, and team with others like us, that the life-changing plan that Jesus is talking about takes effect. You and then are. Uh, you, don't, you are this. You don't earn this. You don't retest to qualify for this. You don't um, aspire to this. You are this. The moment you decide to follow Jesus Christ, you are far from perfect and always will be. But Jesus begins to change you. And from that moment, you're different. You're salt, and you are light. And you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. The. You're, you're not just one of the many ideas out there of what this world really needs. You're, you're, you represent, you carry, and I carry in our lives the only hope that this world has and the people that we know have. This is it. There's no plan B, C, D. There, there's no trying to find a better idea. This, this is it. Of the world. There's nothing in all the world like the power of Jesus to change us. No matter what the culture is, no matter what the history is, this is, this is the plan. It works everywhere. 
that it shows up and changes people's lives. So what's our part in this world-saving plan? We're given the two-part assignment from Jesus here to be salt and to be light. Salt focuses on uh, the effect that our life can have on the lives around us as we become the kind of different that Jesus intends for us to be. So the salt is the flavoring. It's, it's the, as we become different, we, we affect, we flavor our environment. And the light is the positioning. You know, light, lights are positioned in, in certain ways. You don't gather all the lights in a house and put them in one place. They're spread throughout the house. And that's what Jesus does with us. He, he gives us assignments all over this world. And every place that he calls you to be, you're, you're a light. You, you stand on a lampstand. You may be one of the few lights in the area. You may be a part of many lights. But you're in a neighborhood. You're in a place. You're standing in line somewhere. You're on a flight. You're wherever it is, God has positioned you. And our, our challenge is to not hide that light, to cover it up. But to open our mouths and declare the power of Jesus to change us and to change those we talk to. So that's the amazing assignment we've been given. Now, we began last night looking through the book of 1 Peter, which describes, Peter is writing to a group of first century Christians, first century salt and light people, and describes to them how to continue to change, how to be different, and then he addresses some of the challenges of being different in this world. Because not everyone who gets to know us is going to say, oh, great, salt and light, I have been waiting for you. Some will, but most, there may be some struggle. So this assignment comes with some challenges. We looked last night at how it is that the change begins in us with the new life that Jesus provides for us when we decide to follow him, and how that change grows, how God refines our faith like gold. Today, we're going to turn our attention to the, basically what's wrong with our world. Now, there's a lot of ways you could describe what's wrong with our world, and I'm going to use the words of, of this book to describe what's wrong with our world. And this is important because if we are going to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, it's really helpful for us to know what is wrong with this world. What, what is it that needs to change? And there's a lot of ideas out there about what needs to change in this world. But this is God's perspective. And the reason Jesus wants us to be light in this world it's because there's so much darkness. I mean, no one, I think, would deny that. You know, there's darkness everywhere. And there's darkness inside. There's depression. I mean, I don't know if you saw the recent report on the levels of sadness among teen girls that came out a couple weeks ago. It was, just, it was a shocking report. There's the darkness of war. Yeah, I remember when the war in Ukraine broke out, a former Secretary of State, John Kerry, said something that I found to be amazing. He said, I thought the world was done with this kind of senseless violence. Clearly it's not. What amazed me about that comment is he's Secretary of State. He knows all the conflict places in the world. The world is not at all done with violence. That'd be great if it was, but it is not. 
Political leaders keep going to the sites of these mass shootings because we're on track now as a nation to set a new record for mass shootings this year. You may have noticed that President Biden was in this area yesterday at Monterey Park for, to, yeah, to deal with the victims and comfort them there. And every politician says the same thing whenever they go to the site of a mass shooting. They say some version of, this has got to stop. But it keeps on going. I don't fault them because, I mean, that's what politicians do. They pass laws and they make statements. But words and laws cannot stop what's wrong with this world. In the book of 1 Peter, Peter has a lot to say about evil and injustice. It is written to Christians who were the victims of a lot of persecution. Their property, many of them, their property had been taken. Uh, A number of them had been arrested and imprisoned because of their faith in Christ. Some of the early Christians were even dipped in tar and set on fire and used as torches to light roads. So it was, it was at great risk to themselves that they decided to be salt and light. And this is the group he's writing to. And he says this in 1 Peter 1.13, after speaking of the great gift that we've been given, this new life in Christ, He turns his attention to the context in which these new Christians are living. And he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So Peter tells them, you're going to need to keep your mind about you. You're going to need to think clearly and and then act very carefully. Because this is a real challenging situation. And then, he says, set your hope fully on the grace to be given us when Jesus Christ is revealed. And the reason he says this is is in this world, nothing is going to be completely right until Jesus returns. The change will be happening. Lives will be changed. But the world as a whole is still going to be a broken place. It's not until Jesus Christ is revealed that things are going to be set right. So that doesn't mean we look to the sky with great hope and do nothing while we wait for Jesus to return. It means that we must not fall for the trap of thinking that we can solve the problems of this world by human effort. We we can put in effort and we can make some things a little better But our full hope in the world finally being right is when Jesus returns. So we shouldn't be surprised when things are not right in this world. And that's because, as we saw in the last session, real change occurs inside out, not outside in. You can't pass laws. You can't make statements that will change people. That's outside in. That's not how we change. You know, for example, discrimination on the basis of race was outlawed in this nation in 1964. That didn't make it go away. People don't change because laws are passed. Real, lasting change begins on the inside. And the reason is that the problem that we see in this world is a multi-layered problem. I'm going to describe it in terms of three layers. It's a three-layered problem. Most of the problems we face have have layers to them. 
Recently, I, um, I felt, a, well, it was last year, I felt a, a pain in my jaw that um, went on for several months. Actually, it was two years ago now that I think about it. And the pain is what made me aware of the problem. That's layer one. You know, you, we usually become aware of a problem when there's some kind of conflict or some kind of pain. Up, up until that point, we, I didn't know there was a problem. But my jaw started hurting. That's layer one. So for several months, I endured the pain, and I would take Tylenol when it got bad. And like most guys, I was just hoping it would go away. And it, it didn't go away. And that's because the pain that I was feeling pointed to a deeper problem. Turns out I had an infection in one of my sinuses that I couldn't see, but that's what was causing the pain. So that's layer two. Layer two was the infection. And after a round of antibiotics, it still wasn't going away, so I had to have surgery to remove that infection. Problem solved, right? One month later, the pain returned. Why? Turns out that what caused the infection was an old root canal that had gone bad. It was a problem with my tooth or the roots of a tooth. So it turns out the pain that I felt was, was a three-layered problem. There was the pain, there was the infection, and then there was the decaying root that caused the infection. There were three layers to this problem. I, I heard a reporter recently, I think it was after one of the shootings, just kind of break script, I think, and looked at the camera and just said, what is wrong with this world? And the answer is complex because it's a three-layered problem, at least. At least that's how Peter describes it in 1 Peter. Here's, here's what he says, 1 Peter 1, 15 through 19. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. And since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So let me order and organize these in terms of the layers of the problem and then the layers of the solution that Jesus Christ gives. Layer one of the problem is that we are strangers here. This is a statement that's made is we're supposed to live as strangers, but it describes a certain way we're supposed to live. The truth is we're all strangers. In other words, this world is not our final home. That's the surface layer of the problem. That's where we, we feel the pain first. That's what keeps showing up on the streets of our nation and in the emotions of us and those we know. And it doesn't point just to one problem. I mean, you, you can pick your problem, a justice problem, a sadness problem, a racism problem, all kinds of problems. Common to all of them is the pain of not belonging, of feeling and being treated like a stranger, of being on kind of the outside looking in, trying to find your place. And that's why we are told to live our lives as strangers here in reverent fear. We are all strangers here. 
because God is our Father, and we have run away from home. We've all run away from Him, our one true home. And the question now is how are we trying to find shelter without Him? The only adequate shelter is to live in reverent fear. That's how we are to live as strangers here, in reverent fear. To revere means to to honor, to allow something to guide us. The idea is to be guided by God in what he says. And fear in the Bible is not to be scared of God. It means to take God seriously. We fear God kind of the same way I fear gravity. You know, I, I get on the edge of a high precipice of some kind, I back away because I fear the effects of gravity. To fear God is very much the same. As I get to the edge of what God says is wrong, I step away because I realize that the consequences are going to be painful to me. So I, I fear God. That's what it means. But if we don't turn back towards God in reverent fear, we will turn to something else as our home. We will find shelter in this world. And with physical pain, there are always ways to cope, to find shelter, to find comfort. You know, with physical pain, there's aspirin, there's marijuana now, uh, there's heroin. You know, some are legal, some are newly legal, some are not legal. But they're all used to relieve pain. And the same thing is true with soul pain. We feel that primarily in our emotions. We numb that, again, maybe with alcohol. Um, a lot of people now, the statistics show, especially since the pandemic, are numbing the pain with pornography. There's a lot of rage that's going up. Rage is really a way to declare, I belong here and you don't. It's a, it's a desperate, loud way to try to find shelter apart from God. In fact, if you look at the stories of many of the gunmen, they were individuals who had been cast out in some way or had chosen to isolate themselves. They were living as complete strangers. They had found no shelter. And therefore, in rage, they did the ultimate wrong. But if all we see are the acts that show up on the news feeds, we're missing the real message about what's wrong with this world. This world, living apart from God, is in a tremendous amount of pain. Tremendous amount of sadness, pain in the form of rage, pain in the form of anxiety. Some have more pain than others, but all of us share this stranger feel. Why? Layer two. Layer two is an empty way of living. We've all taken approach, an approach to life, a structure that eventually leaves us empty on the inside, a set of goals that we're trying to accomplish and ways we're trying to do it that do not really fulfill what we hope they would give us. And this emptiness is kind of like the infection of my sinus that caused the pain in my jaw. Until the emptiness inside of us is cured, 
the pain can only be numbed. Because the stranger feeling we have is a relational source. It's, it's our relationship with God. It's not a place. It's not a, a job. It's not an accomplishment. It's not retirement. It's not any of the other things that people run to for shelter in this world. They will always leave us feeling empty because we're not looking for a place. We're looking for our Father, a person. So where does this empty way of life come from? It's handed to us, Peter says, from our forefathers. We were all born in different times and into different families and different cultures. But there's one thing we share in common. We were handed, in varying degrees, an empty approach to making a home here apart from God. We were handed an empty way of life. The word empty in the Greek language that's used here carries with it an image, and the image is to chew something with no purpose. It's, it's really what we do with gum. I mean, initially we, we get a stick of gum because we like the flavor or someone told us you need some gum, so we start chewing it. But after about five minutes, the flavor is gone, but we keep chewing. That's when you get to the empty idea here. So what every family does is they hand to their children a way of living, really a, a piece of gum, an approach to life that isn't new. It's been chewed on for generations. And those families form communities that make up societies and cultures. And every generation adds some new flavors to this big cultural wad of gum. But those flavors also fade. And then that wad of gum is passed on to the next generation, and the empty living continues. By empty living, what we mean is an approach to life that doesn't produce what we hope it would produce. It does not satisfy long-term on the inside. So why is this approach empty? Why are these approaches handed down to us empty? Well, that's because of layer three. Layer three is unholiness. Here's how God states the deepest problem through, for, through Peter. He says, be holy because I am holy. So the reason why we keep coming up with empty ways of living that for all of their great variety keep generating emptiness and pain is because God is holy and we are not. Now, what does that mean, that word holy? For me, my first introduction to the word holy was by watching um, the original Batman and Robin on TV back in the 60s. I don't know if any of you ever gone back to see these old episodes, but this is where Batman and Robin got their, got their start. And if you ever watch these old episodes, Robin uses the word holy a lot. I mean, holy this, holy that, holy, that's all he, it's almost all he says. He's kind of like the holy sidekick. So, like, they'll, they'll be in Mr. Freeze's frosty prison, and Bat Robin will claim, holy icicles, Batman. Or they'll be in a vat of ooze. I never did figure out, what, why do they do, what do they do in a vat of ooze? They can easily climb. But anyways, they're in a vat of ooze, and Robin, before they climb out, will turn to Batman and say, holy slime, Batman. And Robin seems to be in a, a continual state of amazement and shock at whatever situation they're in. <laughs> It's like, you're fighting Mr. Freeze. You didn't think you'd end up in an icicle prison? 
but he's always in a state of shock. And as it turns out, Robin is actually using the word holy appropriately because holiness produces an astonishment. Because the word holy means to be different or to be set apart for something very different. And, and God is the ultimate definition of a difference that is shocking and amazing to us. That's who God is. So why can't God just be holy all by himself? Why can't he be shocking and different and amazing just personally? Why, why the word because, in other words? Why does God say be holy because I'm holy? It's because we are created in the image of God. Now, there's a lot that can be said about that, but a major part of what that means is that the moral outline of our lives are to fit the moral outline of God's life. We are in the image of God, which means we're like a shadow of the image of God. God is the solid, we are the shadow. So my shadow is in the outline of my body. And as people who are made in the image of God, we were designed to find our home in the shadow of God's character. That's home for us. But we've ventured, as I've said, we've run away from home. We've colored way outside of the lines, personally, with our own lives of what God says is right and wrong. And the result is not just that we're sinful, that's true, but the result is, is an emptiness. In a sense, we're shadows trying to become solid enough on our own, and we can't. That's not who we are. That's, we weren't made to be independent, solid shadows that are fine by ourselves. We are shadows looking for something big enough to replace God, and there is nothing. In essence, what we're really like is we're like well, we're like shadows trying to hide behind a blade of grass in whatever we pursue. It's, it's just not, it's not anywhere close to God. Our shadow is too big for what we try to make a home of here. That's why we end up empty. So when God says, be holy because I'm holy, he's not saying, hey, be nice because I'm nice. He's not saying, hey, keep, keep this list of rules because I think these rules are really important. That's not the essence of what he's saying. God is saying, come back home. Come back to me and stand within the shadow of my character. That's your home. That's where you belong. We need God on the inside, like our bodies need shelter. And so when we go off on our own and run our own lives apart from him, it's kind of like we're, we're on a soul level, we're running out into the winter night without a jacket. And what begins to happen is our body temperature begins to drop, and over, eventually we die. Now, when it comes to our soul, we can survive out in the cold apart from God for a lifetime. But what we can't do is we can't avoid the emptiness and the pain of our souls getting colder and colder out apart from God. We feel that in different ways, and we act on it in different ways. So what's the solution to this three-layered problem? Here's the three-layered solution. 
The first layer is what most people try to do. These are the perishable answers. And they are symbolized in these verses by silver and gold. These are the answers that money can buy. And really, it's, it's kind of the main way people attempt to try to warm their souls in a godless environment. So this is the first and most common solution to the pain of life. These are the painkillers that we buy. So here's what Peter says. But it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. He said it wasn't silver or gold that fixed you. He's speaking to followers of Christ. They'd already tried probably taking something of value in this world and using it to fill the emptiness of their souls or to stand next to as shadows. But again, it's like trying to warm your soul with a campfire. That can't happen. That's because there isn't enough wood in this world to warm a soul. The reason is because you're trying to give a perishable solution to an imperishable problem. They're, they're, They're not in the same realm. I remember during the, the lockdowns, when there were a lot of protests, one of, the, one of the protest signs I saw, I forget, maybe it was here in LA, but I can't remember where, but the protest sign had, had a list of demands, and these were the demands, justice for all, jobs for all, free education for all, food for all. And I thought, boy, that'd be great. I mean, I, I think that'd be great. But then my next question was, how would you accomplish that? The answer is, with a lot of money. A lot of silver and gold. And that's the problem with these perishable answers. There's only so much silver and gold. Resources are limited in whatever form they come. You know, really, you know, my, um, my experience in business, I did some study in economics, and so... If you study the economic structures and systems of the world, you realize that every economic system wrestles with this. In other words, economics is basically how do you distribute a limited amount of resources to a particular population? What are the mechanisms by which resources are allocated? That's a complex, challenging problem. And all of the different economic theories really range on a spectrum of total freedom to total control. We're, you know, kind of somewhere in the middle. We're moving more towards control and a little bit more away from total freedom. There's problems with both. You know, total freedom basically says just it's every person for themselves. You know, let competition rule. The problem with that is that injustice can happen. I mean, historically, economies that are more on the freedom side, tend to produce more silver and gold for more people, but it has its problems. If you go on the control side, of course, then you turning it over to a powerful person or a powerful government that basically tells you, here's what you can have and here's what you can't have. There's lots of problems with that. In the history of the world, usually those control systems come with a lot of death. But whatever side you go on, that's not going to solve the problem. And that's because no external solution can fix the internal problem. 
I'm not saying that we should abandon the pursuit of justice for all or work to improve the opportunities for people to earn a living and create wealth. No, the pain these problems cause are real problems. But they're, they're not the real problem. So while we work as cultures to, to bandage the real wounds of broken people, we need to understand and address the cancer that is silently growing on the inside that will one day claim every soul. And that cancer is unholiness. And there is no silver and gold answer for that. There is no economic solution. There is no program that can be done in any place in this world that can address that. There's only one answer. And that's the imperishable answer, which is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only answer to this emptiness on the inside. Now, we're very familiar with what money can buy, but not the blood of Christ, generally. I know this group is probably more aware of it, but generally we, we don't understand. So what is the blood of Christ going to purchase? So here again what it says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with what? The precious blood of Christ. Now, what is it that makes the blood of Christ precious and not gross? I mean, I've had people coming around saying, what is it with you people in blood? It sounds kind of weird when you first hear about it. I mean, the blood of Christ is a way of saying his life given for us. It's not the chemical makeup of his blood or something. It's his life, his perfect life given for us. So what it is about the blood of Christ that makes it so precious is that his blood is the only means of exchange that can, as it says here, redeem us. That's an important word to understand. The word redeem means to, to buy back. And when you redeem something, you, know, you have a gift card and you redeem it. You, you, you take the money that's on there and you, you buy back what was put on there. The money is exchanged. So to redeem is to exchange what I've done in the past for a different future. So I exchange something. You know, when I, when I purchase food, I exchange money for food. Back refers to the past. So we exchange something in the past. So the question is, how do you redeem a life? You can't go back in time and undo what you've already done. Time is a non-refundable purchase of the future. I mean, you can take all kinds of stuff back to Costco, but you can't take last year back to Costco. You can't take yesterday back to Costco or anywhere. And what we don't realize is that every day we are trading our decisions for a future. We, that's the exchange. Time is an exchange for the future. The way Scripture refers to it as we reap what we sow, Galatians 6, 7. We reap what we sow. So what we're doing every day is we're taking out a bag of seeds, which is our life and our time and our decisions, and we're planting those. And then we move on to the next moment and the next moment and the next moment. And we move on in life, but what we've planted grows up to become our future. And oftentimes people are really upset with what they get, but they wanted corn, but they kept planting peas. But you can't just wish corn into existence. You have to plant corn into existence. 
But the problem is we can't go back in time. So how can the past that we've done, which is full of wrong, be exchanged for a future that we didn't plant? That's what the word redeem means. And Jesus is the only means of exchange. The blood of Jesus flowed from the veins of someone who lived a holy life on this earth. That makes it a valid exchange for our lives, which are unholy. So no amount of silver or gold can be given in exchange for unholiness. But Jesus wasn't just a holy man. He is God in flesh. And what that means is that the blood coursing through his veins was not just from a holy life, but from an eternal life. And what that means is that his life can be given in exchange not just for one other life, but for as many lives as would take that offer. So there's no limit to the number of lives that his blood can redeem. It's an unlimited power. So the blood of Jesus Christ, his life given for us, is the only substance that can be exchanged for our past. And because of his holy life and his life given for us, we get to have a future that we don't deserve because he died a death that he did not deserve. That's the exchange. That's the redeemed. It's an amazing word that reflects an amazing truth. So what now? We're redeemed. We've exchanged. What are we supposed to do? Just watch our world? No, this leads us to layer three, the imperishable seed of love. This is how Jesus calls us to make a real difference in our world. So let's read on, 22 through 25. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have a sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through the living and enduring word of God, for all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. What does this mean? If you've decided to exchange your past for the future that Jesus offers, you're redeemed. You're going to get a future both now and in eternity, that you don't deserve. If you've done that, you're redeemed. But redeemed is not just a, like a lanyard hanging around your neck. It's not just a label. It begins a purifying process that shows up primarily, not only, but primarily in the way that we love others. Now, of course, Christians are not the only ones capable of love, but Christian love is unique in this way. It grows from a seed that is imperishable. A seed that we didn't plant. Because we can only plant perishable seeds. The seed is the living and enduring Word of God. You see, without the DNA, without the truth of God's Word to guide us, our life and our love is very much like grass. It's very temporary. It says, for all people are like grass, and their glory, the things that people are oohing on about their lives, are like flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. 
The last time in Southern California that it rained this much was about seven years ago, and I don't think it rained this much. But the result of it was a wildflower super bloom. Here's a picture of a field that my wife and I went to. So one of, the, one of the great things I'm excited about with all this rain is when the sun finally comes out, then all of these fields that have been brown are not only going to be green, but they're going to be full of color. And it takes about this much water to generate what they say is a super bloom. So my wife and I are already looking for where are any signs of a super bloom showing up. Because we saw this seven years ago. And this, I mean, this is just a picture. You've you got to be there. It's just amazing. But where are these flowers now? Oh, they only lasted for a few weeks. And that's what it's talking about. Grass withers, flowers fall, as amazing as they are. This is the way our love is naturally. Our love is, is like wildflowers in that it requires ideal conditions to flourish. Our love is a conditional love. That's the kind of love that we know in this world. If we're in the right conditions, we can really be loving people. But you put us in a challenging condition, you put us with someone that's challenging, that's, we don't flourish so much there. And that's why every problem in this world isn't going to be solved by human love. What, what makes the salt and the light attractive is the love that we have for people. We're not like a, a big thing of salt that we just dump on people's lives and say, there, salt. <laughs> We're not light like high beams, <clears throat> light. We are salt and light wrapped in love. And the only way we can love the people in this world in a way that they might be attracted to the flavor of our life, they might be attracted to the light of God's truth, is as we love them. And the reason that that's true is real change is inside out. And love is what, what tends to crack open a heart. But our love is perishable. It's very hard to have a sincere love for each other and to love one another deeply from the heart. And to do this when no one is looking and the person is hard to love and they're irritating and the need to love them just keeps on going. That's really hard. That love can only grow from the imperishable seed of God's love for us and his words to guide our love. It's as we love each other deeply from the heart that we get a chance to make an imperishable impact on this world. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we know of the emptiness of the patterns of this world. We know of the emptiness even in our own family histories. We know that there is no amount of silver or gold that can um, fill the emptiness on the inside. We're surrounded by a world of people that are still trying to exchange money for happiness. I pray that you would uh, help us to, to love them well, 
to take an, just take an interest in them, to pause long enough in our running around, to listen to people, to wonder about people, to imagine what they might be like if, like us, they come to know you. And then to strike up conversations and see where you might take them. We thank you for redeeming us, for exchanging our unholy past for a future that is different. Not just different in a different way, but different in the way you want it to be. We thank you for redeeming us, and we pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.